Shalom Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimlet. Barbara is Ronald S. Lauer Chief Curator, Pauline Museum Corps Exhibition, and University Professor Emirata and Professor Emirata of Performance Studies at New York University. Her books include Destination Culture, Tourism, Museums, and Heritage. Image Before My Eyes, A Photographic History of Jewish Life in Poland, 1864 to 1939, and They Called Me Meyer July, Painted Memories of a Jewish Childhood in Poland Before the Holocaust. Barbara is a recipient of honorary doctorates from the Jewish Theological Seminar, University of Haifa, and Indiana University. She was decorated with the Officer's Cross of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Poland for her contribution to Poland Museum. Most recently, she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and was awarded the Dan David Prize. She serves on advisory boards for the Evo Institute for Jewish Research, Council of American Jewish Museums, Jewish Museum Vienna, Jewish Museum Berlin, and the Jewish Museum of Tolerance Center in Moscow. She's an advisor for museum exhibition projects in Lithuania, Albania, Belarus, Israel, and the United States. Welcome, Barbara. So great to have you here today um, on the podcast. My pleasure. Um, so before we speak about the upcoming series of talks, which led me in your direction, which is titled Meet the Family, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about your work in the museum field and how you came to it all. Well, my interest in museums began in childhood uh, during a period when I was uh, very, very orthodox. I was sent to various Jewish after-schools, the Farbanshula, the Peretzshula, none of which were effective, and I was finally sent to a Talmud Torah. This is in Toronto, Canada, during the 1940s and early 50s. And as a result of the Talmud Torah, I became so, so Shomer Shabbos, so observant of the Sabbath, that I could do absolutely nothing. No movies, no streetcar, no money, no radio, no television, no nothing. Except I could walk to the Royal Ontario Museum. And I spent every Saturday on the six floors, one floor per Saturday. And that was the beginning of my absolute passion for museums. It really started in childhood. And it developed over the years and became a professional interest and an academic interest. So it included curating exhibitions for the Yibel Institute for Jewish Research, for the Jewish Museum in New York, for the Smithsonian. Um, and it also included writing about museums and teaching. So it was this combination of a personal love for museums, a professional engagement directly in curatorial work, and an academic interest in the history and theory of museums, but with special reference to the ways in which Jews have been represented and have represented themselves in museums. It's um, interesting to hear you talk about your early childhood, which I'm going to now insert a different question than I had on my list <laughs> to ask you, um, because... Um, being somebody myself who is really interested in art history as a child, I wonder if that first engagement as a child and the way that you viewed art has um, 
sort of informed the way that you open up art and culture to the rest of us. I think you have a really wonderful way of providing context and content and, um, again, encouraging us to look at things in different ways. Well, you know, interestingly, um, when I would tire of my sixth-floor rotation at the Royal Ontario Museum, I would venture to the Sigmund Samuel Gallery of Canadiana, which was paintings, and to the Art Gallery of Ontario, which was an art museum, basically an art gallery. But my favorite by far was the Royal Ontario Museum, which was a universal survey museum. So it was Canadian and indigenous people on the in the basement. It was rocks, geology on the first floor. It was Greek attic vases. It was furniture, decorative arts. So I was really more oriented towards what you might call material culture, towards artifacts and objects, than I was towards art per se. And I think that the the breadth of that collection and the sort of the range of objects really opened out in many, many more directions than I found at either the Sigmund Samuel Gallery of Canadiana or the Ontario Art Gallery. So it's really, um, I, I think that I was much more object-oriented. And in a way, that better suited my, my eventually my academic interests in anthropology, ethnography, folklore, and that evolved towards a special a specialty in East European Jewish culture and in Yiddish studies. And all of those came together in the opportunity that presented itself to be the person leading the development of the permanent exhibition at Pauline Museum. So, will you talk a little bit as well about your father and his art and sort of how that informs your work and sort of his legacy? Sure. Well, the when I began my uh when I began working on my PhD at Indiana University in folklore, one of the first courses I took in the, the it, well really in the first semester was a course in field methods and field research. And the professor, uh, Jerome uh, Mintz, had done his dissertation on legends of the Hasidim in, in, in Brooklyn. And when he found out that I knew Yiddish, he encouraged me to, to do my field project for that course on Yiddish folklore. And so when I went home for the Thanksgiving holiday, um, I took with me my, the, the, the textbook for the Russian folklore course that I was taking. And I began reading from the chapter on customs associated with death, that you lay the the body out uh, on a board between two chairs with the feet turning, you know, feet to, with the feet facing the door so that the the dead won't find their way back in. And you open the window and place a glass of water there with a hanky so that the soul can leave and wash itself and dry itself, etc. Well. My father said, "Well, you know, we we did some we did things something like that," and I thought, "Really? I had never never ever thought of my own immediate family as uh, as being a kind of resource for for thinking about East European Jewish culture and particularly what I think of as the culture of everyday people in their everyday lives." So I, I you know I began uh, talking with my parents and. And then, of course, with the wider family and then with the wider Jewish community. 
and I proposed to the Center for Folklife Research at what was then the National Museum of Canada in Ottawa to do a survey of Yiddish folklore in Toronto, which I, which I did undertake in the late 60s. And uh, what I discovered after having done that survey is that the most interesting person to talk to and the most interesting conversation to have was with my father. And that began a 40, more than 40 year conversation with him. And during the last 20 years of his life, that evolved into a, I would say, it, basically he painted what he could remember during the last uh, 20 years of his life. He had retired early because of a serious illness and then he got better and he was at loose ends. And after about 10 years of begging and pleading with him to actually paint what he could remember because I knew that he had a very visual memory, he began and that's what he did during the last 20 years. And the paintings are really amazing. And he basically, he has an extraordinary memory. Just, I mean, really, I would say uh, a memory without limits. And, and it had to do very much with the way in which he engages with the world. I think of him as, maybe this is an exaggeration, as the least introspective person that I know. And so I characterize him as being extrospective. In other words, the way that I could come to know him and in a way, uh, the way that he knows himself is not, not so much through, through introspection as it is through his way of engaging with the world. And I think that that is a key to memory. He simply, in a way, he conjures up the streets of his hometown, Apatuf, or Apt in Yiddish, and literally it becomes a memory palace. He, as he, in his memory, walks down one side of the main square, on the other square, he literally recalls house by house, floor by floor, who lived there, what shop was there, uh, the character of the, those individuals, stories about them, uh, market day, um, and, and then working out uh, literally from there. So there's, um, it was, I found, well, I just found that those conversations were just incredibly interesting and I think they became very very interesting for him too especially as he got older and they because he had this very visual way of encountering the world and also visual way of remembering and he also he he um, uh, he, he began he apprenticed as a shoemaker in Apatos and Opt and he apprenticed as an electrician but when he came to Canada after a period in a sweatshop, he actually worked with a uh, Mr. Gross as a house painter, and then eventually he opened up his own paint and wallpaper store. So interior decorating, I mean, he wasn't an interior decorator in the, the way that we think of interior decorating, but clearly uh, one of his strengths in his business was in his ability to advise people on paint, wallpaper, floor covering, and the like. And I, I knew from my interviews with him that when I didn't understand something, I would say to him, explain it to me. And in my notebook, he would actually make drawings. And those, uh, I, I could tell really from, from my interviews with him and from the way in which he would literally draw uh, to explain to me how the pump would work for uh, pumping water to put out a fire, uh, put out a fire in the town or uh, how to make a shoe. He would literally make me a series of drawings to explain it. So 
I just knew that he, I, I knew he could paint what he remembered. I just simply knew it. But he had no confidence. He, he, he said, I've never, I've never done it. I don't know how. I've never taken any art lessons. And then my mother, after you know years and years of campaigning, my mother, my husband, who's an artist, myself, and we would buy him, you know, paint, canvas, brushes, Conti crayons, paper, easel, everything. And they would just pile up in a cupboard, uh, you know, for every birthday, anniversary, for every, you know, Father's Day, for every conceivable occasion. My mother came home one day from the local JCC and she said to him, I've signed you up for art classes and they don't give refunds. <laughs> so he then had absolutely no choice. Or he felt he had no choice, you know, being the, you know, the thrifty people that they were. So he went and he went to a life drawing class. He went to a still life class. It was hopeless. And so, you know, we said to him, listen, forget it. You know, forget, who cares? Forget it. Just do it. And then somehow or other, he, uh, and my mother said to him, paint the kitchen, do it for Barbara. You know, she'll use it in her work because he knew and she knew that, that my very favorite subject was the kitchen and everything associated with it. And so he did, and he arrived at a celebration that my sister and I personally catered. We did all the cooking, and we invited people to her home. And he arrived with an easel and with his first painting, which was a kitchen. And he was so astonished by what he had done. He had no idea that that he was capable of doing it. He was so absolutely astonished that he, you know, he, he just, I think that's what gave him the confidence to keep going. And that's what he did for the last 20 years of his life. And he died at the age of 93. So he actually began at the age of 73. Incredible. His work is just fabulous. Um, uh, and it's, it, the way you describe it, it's almost, um, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at reading some Yiddish memoir in translation recently at the detail um, of the recall and what you're suggesting is that for some it comes out um, in words and for your father he had that kind of amazing recall visually, yeah? Well, well, actually in words and images and um, what, I w what I would say is this, that if not for someone who wanted to listen, there would not have been this recall, simply that it's a, I would say that that kind of recall is a collaboration between someone who has the capacity to recall and someone who wants to listen. And, you know, I like to say, I mean, I'm trained as a, an ethnographer, a folklorist, anthropologist, so that means that I have um, an interest in everyday life. I have an enormous respect for ordinary people and their creative capacities. I have enormous faith in their capacity to be creative to the very end of their days. I have a special love for the elderly um, and what they can offer us. And I know how to, I know how to do, I know how to make, I know how to do those kinds of interviews. But also, I would say that that my father's memory has very much to do with his insatiable curiosity, a curiosity that extended throughout his life. It isn't just from his first 17 years in Poland. He was born in 1916, and he left for Canada in 1934. So he really spent his childhood and adolescence in Poland, 
but his curiosity, which is the key, in fact, to his memory, really extended. I remember he was already in his 90s, and when I pick him up at LaGuardia to bring him uh, from Toronto to, to our place in New York, uh, you know, in a taxi, he we'd be crossing like the Brooklyn Bridge or the Williamsburg Bridge, and he would say to me, do you know how, how suspension bridges are made? And he would give me a, a mini lecture on engineering. I mean, he he was, um, you know, I, I remember driving home from his store in Toronto to our suburban home, and on the way, you know, he would say, uh, you know, he would give me a little a little mini lecture on reproduction. He would, you know, he'd begin, the womb is a pear-shaped object, and it would go from there. Or he'd say, do you know how the stock market works? So he he was curious. He um, and he loved he loved to explain how everything and anything worked. You know, he was a living popular mechanics. He was a do-it-yourself guy. He repaired his own shoes. He pulled out his own teeth. I mean, he, he really, he was a very, very unusual person. And what I would say is that what I inherited from him was his curiosity. I would say that his curiosity, that, that his curiosity was matched by mine that I was as curious about what he was curious about. And so I like to say that uh, I got the right father and he got the right daughter. And that our curiosities met. I, I would say I was much more curious. I was much more curious about, of course, about his childhood in Apatos and Upt than I was about the stock market or the engineering of a suspension bridge. But, I, but in other words, his curiosity never stopped. My interest, of course, was primarily in his, in his childhood. So, and, and then I think he was, in a way, astonished, maybe as astonished as I was at what he could remember. And I found many different ways to tap into his memory because he would not, it wasn't a matter of saying, sort of sitting down, turning on the tape recorder, and, you know, saying to him, go, remember. On the contrary, it was finding many, many different ways in to that deep, deep well of memory. And, and I had all kinds of tricks. So, for example, I knew that if I got him started on explaining something, that I could have a whole interview. So, you know, we have several pages in the book about how to make a shoe. My sister said that when she would, when she read the manuscript, when she would read those sections, she said her eyes would glaze over, that I should leave them out. And I said, no way. We're going to keep them in. If somebody's not interested, they can skip those pages. But they are, they're really amazing. And my father, I remember he, he told me when he would go to the steam bath at the JCC, he would sit around with survivors, uh, with you know, the people who were a little bit younger than him, um, but that had also, you know, remembered all kinds of things. And one of them was that had been a shoemaker in the old country. And my father would say to this guy, he'd say to him, listen, Shmuel, tell me something. You're a shoemaker. You were a shoemaker. I described to my daughter how to make a shoe. He's, he says, here's what I described. And he goes into detail. And Shmuel said to him, Meyer, from what you described, I would know how to make a shoe. So, you know, he, he, but I knew that the moment that he began, <clears throat> that that mechanical process 
that he would then be able, it was like walking down the street where you go house by house. Making a shoe was the same thing, only it was how to go. And also I think it was partly because not only did he apprentice to the craftsman, to the artisan, that made only the upper part of the shoe, kamasha, a kamasha macher, because that was a specialty. But his father had um, had a little business of selling everything that a shoemaker needed, all the leather and the findings and all of the everything that you needed to make a shoe. So, so that would that would have been one way. In other words, walking down the street was one way. Uh, how how to make something was another way. But another way was to to take a series like. Holidays, the calendar year. Okay, let's start. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Simchas Torah, you know, Sukkah, Simchas Torah, uh, Hanukkah, Purim. You know that we would go, <clears throat> pardon me, through the whole calendar year, or we take the life cycle. We would start with um, even, um, pardon me, with conception, with birth, with uh, bris, naming. Go through the whole life cycle. Or when we had, you know, I once took him to a lecture that I thought he would find interesting. And it, it was at the Hebrew University, and it was an anniversary. <clears throat> and we're sitting there, and he's listening, and then at a certain point he says to me, I'm bored. So I said to him, listen, daydream. So a few minutes later he said, I'm still bored. I said, okay. So I took, I had a big pad of paper. I took each sheet of paper, and on the top of each sheet of paper I put a keyword. Uh, I put down horses electricity, trains, cars, water, uh, just completely random. I gave him that sheaf of paper and I said to him, free associate. So then he started writing. He started writing like a long paragraph on when electricity came to the town. He started writing a whole long paragraph about the river. Uh, another long paragraph about the first car to come to town and the and the chauffeur and the rich man who owned it and who did nothing but drive it around the town to show it off. So there I had all kinds of, um, or what I would do is when he would remember, based on any of these sort of triggers, these sort of prompts, then there were elements inside those memories and I could go from there. So it was like a network of remembering and it was about, so if, for example, he would say that, that so-and-so, the richest man in town, bought this car. I said, well, tell me about the guy. What about his wife? What about his kids? What about his house? So it was a, like, it was almost like a kind of a mapping from whatever I had in my hands, from, you know, whatever triggers and prompts I had used. And it was, that's what sustained us for 40 years. And when he died, you know, apart from being devastated at losing him, even at the ripe old age of 93, I still had so many questions and things I wanted to talk to him about. And I just, I was just devastated by the not only the loss of my father, but of the loss of the opportunity to keep going. Because I had the feeling that there was no end to what he could remember. No end. It's it's amazing. I mean, the two of you together um, was just a gift um, that you could elicit. Totally. Absolutely. So um, let me ask you now then about the Legacy Gallery. It's, sort of, it's, a, it's a nice segue into it. Um, so tell me about the Legacy Gallery and also the Meet the Family, which is the series of talks. Sure. 
Sure. So, so basically, when I think of legacy, I think of uh, I think of my father. You, you uh, and what I think of is I think of the legacy of the culture with a small C and the culture with a big C, the the legacy of the civilization that Polish Jews created and transmitted through the generations and to future generations today. And I think of it as a legacy created by everyone. And my father represents everyone. So it is not he's not famous. He is he completed seven grades of Polish public school and went to of course a Jewish cheder to a Jewish after school. And he what he remembers and what he um, what I was able to elicit from him and able to communicate through exhibitions of his paintings, a documentary film, a book, and all of the audio and video recordings that we made, that that represents, uh, or if you will, that's one kind of legacy. And that is a legacy that we'll present in the central circulation space of the core exhibition in an area that has a working title of Polish Jews in the World. In other words, um, what did Polish Jews who left Poland take with them, um, and what is their connection to this legacy in the sense of the civilization created by all Polish Jews? What do they take with them, and what does it mean to them today in the places that they call home? But there's another way that we think of legacy, and that is represented in a gallery that is called Legacy, and it it is... Uh, an attempt to, if you will, recognize distinguished individuals and their singular achievements and contributions to, I would say, world culture, Polish culture, Jewish culture, and, if you will, their contributions to the heritage of humanity in that very broad sense. Now, one of the one of our uh, objectives was to to do this in a way that would create a kind of collective portrait of Polish Jews through the lives of very of individuals who have very, very diverse lives, diverse careers, and that made very diverse contributions in a whole range of fields. It was important for us that these lives and these contributions be a way, a different way into the history of Polish Jews. And so we asked two questions of these individuals and their lives and achievements. One was, how do they illuminate the history of Polish Jews, and how does the history of Polish Jews illuminate who they were, who they became, and what they did? We took that approach because our legacy gallery was an attempt to respond to a very deeply felt desire if not demand, for what might be otherwise a, in quotation marks, Hall of Fame. And that was something that we desperately wanted to avoid. We wanted to avoid um, what, you know, it, it makes, maybe perhaps makes sense for like sports Hall of Fames, or Halls of Fame, or Halls of Fame dedicated to popular music and the like. And it's a very popular, very attractive, very appealing approach to essentially uh, shine a light on distinguished individuals 
very often famous ones, widely recognized Nobel Prize winners. Um, and to it, it, it's attractive to the general public. It's attractive very often to stakeholders, to donors, and to and to others. And we as scholars, historians, uh, professional curators, we feel that that a serious museum of the history of Polish Jews um, should avoid approaches that are, I would say, celebratory, apologetic, defensive, that we want to engage our visitors in a different way of thinking about history and a different way of thinking about history of Polish Jews. So we wanted to satisfy that demand without making a Hall of Fame. And we wanted to, for this uh, legacy gallery to uh, to essentially, if you will, entice our visitors to explore these lives and become interested in learning more about the history of Polish Jews, to visit our core exhibition, and to rediscover many of these same individuals within the historical narrative that we present. And so one of one of the uh, so in addition to the presentations in the gallery itself, we organize, we've organized a series of public programs. And one of those programs, which is one that I conceived of years ago, which I had hoped would be really central, and I think it is uh, going to be quite central to our, to our public programs, is Meet the Family. Because what I wanted to stress is the legacy of these individuals, and especially the 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 ways in which their descendants, whether they're direct descendants, which is to say members of their family, the subsequent generations, or their students and the people they've influenced, what is their what does their what do their achievements mean to those who followed? So in other words, what is their legacy? What did they leave and what does it mean and how is it functioning? How is it if you will, continue to live for future generations, for the present and future generations. And who are the real legacy keepers? Who are those that really care about this legacy? What are they doing? And how are they keeping this legacy alive? And so Meet the Family is a kind of starting point by going to those who are closest to, to, those, who that, to those that we think of as... Um, uh, within this this collective portrait. Now, we are not necessarily focusing on the 26 individuals that we've started with that are actually cased in this gallery, but rather we're wanting to really expand the the individuals that we focus on, and we take as our starting point not so much those individuals as their descendants. So we're asking ourselves, who, which of the descendants, which descendants care about this legacy and what are they doing and we thought that there would be no one better to start with than with David Mazover and with Sholem Ash and and the and it's a great story fantastic story um and we think that so our interest is really in David's relationship to Sholem Ash and not only in Sholem Ash and and what he achieved. So that's really the idea. Great. Well, we're looking forward to that. It's um, again for our listeners. It's meet 
meet the family. Um, and the first in the series will be with David Zauer, who is the biographer and editorial director uh, at the Jewish Book Center. And it's Sunday, February 7th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And I should say that, that I have been a great fan of the Jewish Book Center from its inception, and I am a regular, regular beneficiary of all of the good work that you do. I have made ample use of the collection, which has been a lifesaver. I cannot begin to tell you, I can't even imagine uh, my own research and the work of the uh, Pauline Museum without, the, without access to that digital collection. But also, I think you do wonderful public programs. I listened to David's recent program on his great-grandfather. I listened to David Engel's brilliant lecture on the five bullets that changed history. And I want to really congratulate you on, on really doing uh, such important work. And I'm delighted to to be able to to feature David and his relationship to his great-grandfather as our launch of the Meet the Family series at Pauline Museum. Well, thank you for your for your kind words. Um, we are huge champions in, of, of your work, um, which sends us in all sorts of interesting directions. Um, I never quite can imagine how you sleep, Barbara, because <laughs> you're always sharing out um, all sorts of links and, and sending me and others in directions that we might otherwise never have found our way to. Um, and it all creates this incredible picture of what you know the the fabulous legacy of Yiddish and the ongoing legacy of Yiddish culture um so for, for your work um thank you and i can't wait to get back to the um museum when we can next travel so let's Ab- continue. absolutely yeah um that was absolutely just um, one of the most amazing trips I've had in, in years. Um, again, thank you so much for joining me today um, for all of your oh, work. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Everything. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, yeah, thank you very much, it. Lisa. Thanks, thanks Barbara. Bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well. Be healthy and tune in again soon.